So we've uh, arrived at our last evening of our retreat. I have to confess, I feel like I've been here a long time. (laughs) It's actually only five days, it's not that long. Uh, But many different worlds that we've passed through together and many different uh, experiences and moods and feelings and insights and awakenings and openings and crashing. (laughs) It's uh, all within this timeless one awareness, present. Uh, One of our teachers in... uh, UK, Ajahn Sumaya used to say, we have the feeling that we're going through life, <clears throat> but in reality, life is unfolding within this immovable suchness of being. Uh, so that's a, just a shift of perspective that helps us maybe relax a little bit and take some of the stress out of it all. <clears throat> it's a, encourage us to trust and allow the dharma that we've been practicing to emerge in our life and support us. And so this dharma is uh, something we can't own. It's not uh, doesn't actually belong to Buddhism or any one school or any one approach or any one religion. This dharma nature is this pure consciousness, this fluid intelligence, profound intelligence the universe that we can awaken into it doesn't is not uh, can't be captured and can't be owned and doesn't belong it can be pointed to and you know these teachings that we've been using are pointers uh, point us to the immediacy of this realization that which we each embody in our own way and find our own uh, perhaps even our own language our own way of expressing this dharma our own way of living it our own truth within it. There's not one right way or one way it has to look. And there is quite a lot of uh, pressure sometimes to feel what is the right way of doing this and what should I look like if I'm living a Dharma life? How to prescribe this in a way that uh, I can be affirmed. This is is what it should be. For many years, I wanted someone to tell me that. (laughs) And uh, I began to realize that to to, um, uh, embody it oneself and uh, grow in the courage of that. Uh, uh, We were once, Kirisara and I, (coughs) on pilgrimage shortly after we uh, left our monastic life, which was quite formulated and quite structured and in a certain way had a strong sense of direction uh, you give yourself into this form into this lifestyle and you, you're, you're focused on enlightenment so it's, uh, there's some security in that in that feeling of having a, a very strong and prescribed direction which everything is honed towards and then on actually leaving that structure, which was a, a good decision and a, a good process to go through, but it was also very destabilizing and threw open a lot of doubt and a lot of uncertainty, a lot of questions, how then do you live? And even going to the supermarket and trying to choose what to eat for the evening was a major point of stress because so many decisions were, were taken away in that lifestyle. You just lived the day. 
Um, you know, and we have so many complex decisions to make. So we, uh, we went on pilgrimage. We thought, well, when you don't know what to do, actually going on pilgrimage is a good thing. You just, it's an ancient way of practice. You just uh, go to a holy, holy place, holy site, and you take a journey. You take a journey, you don't know what will happen on the journey. The journey itself is part of the pilgrimage. So we decided to go to the holy sites in India, uh, go see where the, you know, the Buddha where the Buddha was enlightened, and Varanasi, the great holy city, the ancient city of Varanasi, and then go to some of the ashrams in the foothills of the Himalayas. Uh, of a particular saint, there were many different saints that we went to see, but some we felt strong affinity with. And then down into South India, we went to see Sai Baba, and then we went to see this other great uh, um, Swami, Swami Premananda. And uh, he was known, like Sai Baba, but not so well known. He was no, known for producing and manifesting things. And he had this ashram. He'd actually come from Sri Lanka. And he ran an orphanage. And um, he had this great r- radiancy about him. He was quite childlike in a way. He was very, sort of had a great purity about him and a sense of radiancy. And um, he, um, when we first met him, we were in uh, a small group together and um, someone had said they wanted to take a photo but the, the, f- the camera had broken. They couldn't take a photo. So he picked it up and he pressed it. It's like a, a kid. Oh, let me have a look at that. And he pressed it and it just started flashing. <laughs> and he had this said ever since he was a child, you know, he'd think of things and they would appear uh, spontaneously. And so, of course, we wanted something... <laughs> Would you manifest something for us? And so eventually um, we got to have a sort of a darshan with him and went to see him. And, and we've been thinking a lot, I'd been thinking a lot about, you know, what what's the path now? Who do we follow? And you know, that sort of doubt. And so we came into um, this darshan with uh, Swami and he, he looked at me and said, don't worry. <laughs> I've been worrying so much. And he said, I said, well, you know, I'm just wondering what to practice, who to practice. Oh, just practice with, you know, practice, uh, pra- just practice. And I said, well, but who with? Any sangha, it doesn't matter, just practice. <laughs> and then he, he had no shirt, he just had a, a dhoti on, and then he just sort of went like this. He produced this uh, Ganesha for Kitty Saro. And um, and I was thinking, oh, I wouldn't mind. <laughs> and I, know I shouldn't have that thought. <laughs> shouldn't I know? Delete, delete. <laughs> and so then he looked at me immediately. He said, don't worry, I'll get something for you. <laughs> and he went like this and he produced a Shiva Lingam, which we still have at our place in South Africa. So, you know, it's just one of these strange things that have happened for us in our life. <laughs> But it was helpful for Swami just to say, in a way, more than the manifesting of things, which is uh, something else, but this was this just, uh, you know, just don't worry, just keep going back into the practice and finding that sense of support where you can. As the Dharma provides, the Dharma will respond and bring to you, if we open truly and have that deep sense of opening into this awakening process, actually things do come to us, people, circumstances, and challenges, and joys, and miraculous things can open for us. This Dharma nature is ever-present and fluid, 
and dynamic. Uh, And so we've been practicing to awaken to this Dharma and um, this practice, uh, Buddha himself said this practice is like um, a raft. It takes us from one place to another. It takes us across the sea of samsara, the sea of suffering, from one shore to another. And uh, he said, you know, when you when you take a journey, when you pick up and, and uh, make your raft, just make it from whatever's on the bank that you're on. Just pick up the sticks and the and the branches and leaves and sort of weave together your raft. It doesn't have to be a sort of a huge uh, shipping liner or something. You know, it can be a something that just takes you across. Something that can make the journey for you. And so we've been picking up from these practices and we can begin to make our raft, that which will support us. It will maybe be a little bit different for each of us. It's not going to all look exactly the same. You know, for some of us, we have a great propensity and interest in really developing the samadhi practices that we've been um, exploring. And, you know, maybe deep states of calm and really wanting to explore that more and deepen into that. For others, it doesn't work so well and, and just to have a more sort of open, spacious, reflective, inquiring kind of practice, a wisdom practice, um, that uh, just exploring what is arising, the phenomena that is arising, the, the experience of, of our sensitivity and feeling nature, the states of mind, um, looking at anicca, change, uh, for some of us, this turning back into the heart, turning the mind back into this awareness, or the cultivation of, of compassion, metta, you know, the, the way of service, the way of introspection. There's many different approaches, many different aspects of this, these practices that support our way and our journey. But the point is to pick up pick up uh, the practices and make our our support. And then when the Buddha said, when we get to the where we need to go, we don't have to keep carrying it around. We can just leave it there for someone else. We don't have to enshrine it. You know, it's a, something that we use, very practical. Or Ajahn Chah said uh, this, uh, he said this, um, this way of these structures that help support the practice ethical structures and, and all of that we've been doing. It's a bit like a, the peel of a fruit. It holds the soft fruit. It holds this taste of liberation, this taste of peace. But if we, keep, if we just hold on to the peel and just chew that, then it's actually quite bitter. If we get too overly uh, constricted and attached to to the forms of our practice and then become stuck in them and then just become a good Buddhist or a good meditator, um, but don't actually use what the forms and the practices to liberate ourselves. And it's a bit like, you know, it will take us so far, but then it won't really take us to that juice, to the nourishment of within the fruit. So we want to use these practices um, not to just bind ourselves in and oppress ourselves again in another kind of way, but to to induct us into our own living, aware, dharma, present heart. So 
So when we begin, often we we begin because we want, so when we begin this practice, often we're motivated because we want to, um, we want something, you know, we want to get a bit more peaceful or maybe we want the the big enlightenment or maybe we want to just try and get a bit of perspective on our life and usually what we want is what we, we equate what we want in, in more positive terms, which is very, very good, very beneficial and, and there's much in the spiritual supermarket that addresses that, you know, to enter into different practices so that we can become less stressful, more peaceful, more empowered, clearer, stronger, better health, better wealth, (laughs) whatever it is, and it can attract us in and we start to practice. But inevitably, um, in in an authentic awakening practice, we're going to be, we're going to start to meet as various forms of 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 suffering we're going to start to meet or in psychological terms the shadow the pieces of ourselves and the parts of ourselves that we haven't yet paid attention to the, d- the deeper wounds or our fears or our anxieties or our, the lack of confidence we have or the struggles that we have and many of the places that we've all touched into during this retreat and we talked about in our small groups. So at that point then, if our motivation is only just for a pleasant experience, then we won't have a lot of juice to continue. We'll just bail out and then sort of shift to another something else that maybe can give us a momentary lift. Uh, but it doesn't become that internalized. So we start to become dependent then on something external, someone uh, to lift us up, and and that's not that has value. That's not without value. But to deepen and to become this, you know, Buddha always said to be ultimately a lamp unto ourself, to deepen, and so we have and grow in this confidence and empower uh, way of awakening, so we can um, reflect and know the Dharma directly ourselves. Then the necessary part of our journey is going to have to navigate and negotiate these uh, hindrances and obstructions and and the and the you know some ways a mysterious journey of suffering why do why do we have to go through suffering you know it's um shouldn't be like that <laughs> you know should all should be nice <laughs> should be the world should be not what it is you know why is it like this and uh, it's, uh, it's this, but some, for, for, you know, this is a part of the mystery in some ways. Is this the dualistic experience where we're challenged by that, which is, which is, um, which which brings a lot of um, uh, conflict and suffering for us personally and collectively. Uh, so. Um, and this is how, you know, we, there's a lot of philosophical explorations, religious explorations we could explore and look into as to why is this like this. And very simply, Ajahn Chah, once when he um, went to see one of his disciples, a Western monk who was in hospital in Bangkok, and this monk was undergoing, um, uh, had to undergo an operation on his knees and he, he was very upset about this because it would mean he wouldn't be able to sit cross-legged and 
you know, that was his sort of the the thing that you do as a as a monk, sit cross legged, he'd have to sit in a chair or something. So he was very upset about this thing, this whole process he had to go through and so when Ajahn Chah was there by his bedside, he said, Oh Lung Poor, it shouldn't really be like this, it shouldn't be like this. And Ajahn Chah leant over him and said, Well, you know, if it shouldn't be like this, it wouldn't be like this. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so if it shouldn't be like this, it wouldn't be. But it is. You know, we can we can take a lot of energy. The world shouldn't be like this. I shouldn't be like this. And we can present, you know, our experience is a problem. It should be different. And yes, of course it should. We can all know how it should be. But it's like this. And so when we come to uh, work with this shadow material or this dukkha. You know, to understand that um, as we translate this practice into our everyday life, and that it's actually this right view, this seeing clearly begins with us being able to know it is like this, as a, a place that we can then work from. It doesn't mean to say we don't work to change things, but often if we just change things from our assumptions or we're not really tuning in to actually how it is and listening more deeply, then we, 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 we may not be the most effective in our response. So it is like this, and that's what we can then work with and be with. It's like this, and this is... Um, training for that we uh, that we um, was actually something very profound when in our monastic training again and again our abbot would say it's like this this is how it is in this moment maybe distracted maybe not that pleasant maybe peaceful whatever it is it's like this and then we meet how it is without the mind projecting it should be a different way so it's it's difficult to engage the journey of suffering it's unavoidable and so it's very different when we realize we have agency to meet we go into life and then if there are difficulties that will come for all of us in all sorts of different ways it would be naive to think otherwise it's very different to engage that from a place of awareness that process of challenge and uh whatever circumstances that may present to engage from a place of um, rather unconsciously suffering to be able to consciously engage this is how it is and to meet that. So these practices help to strengthen us so that we have the capacity and the ability in any moment just to this is how it is and taking something very simple like a, a deepening breath an adjustment of attitude, an alignment to investigating and uh, realizing that there's an opportunity maybe in whatever is being presented to us that we have the opportunity to, to work and move towards a more mindful relationship. <coughs> Replacing the reactivity of the mind with this more mindful awareness of how it is starting with the body, how is it feeling in the body? As soon as we can return there, whether we're in a a line at the cash till or whether we're driving or whether we're 
in a re- in at work, in a relationship, in a conflict, or going to the movies, whatever it is, how is it in the body? So it becomes doesn't become abstract, it becomes a real practical grounding and taking the breath there, taking our awareness there. So this training, as long as we have a body, <laughs> we have everything we need to orientate ourselves back into this mindful awareness. But it isn't easy, and, but as we can grow in some capacity, then this, this third, what's called this third profound motivation can arise where we become perhaps less um, frightened of suffering and more able to meet it and to realize actually, as one great uh, Tibetan master said, the, the, um, the greater the, the suffering, the greater the blaze of awakening, <laughs> the greater the there's the the potential for growth, and so in this, in the, in the we don't welcome it, but what it, what what we can find, we can know that we can be with our experience from a deepening motivation, which is a willingness not only just to endure difficulty or to avoid it and constantly live in a realm of distraction, but that we can actually turn to it from a place of more compassion. A, a, compla- a place of more interest, a place of agency to be able to uh, transform and through that process grow in our awakening, in our embodied awakening. There's um, a lovely um, a story, it's a mythical story uh, from the Tibetan school Buddhism about the great Bodhisattva, the great enlightened being of compassion, who's called Avalokiteshvara in Sanskrit or Kuan Yin in Chinese, that we've been doing the practice in the early morning around Kuan Yin, the one that listens deeply to the sounds of the world. And it's said that Avalokiteshvara, in a moment of great spiritual high, and inspiration decided to come down to the earth and share the Dharma. And so uh, incarnated as this great sort of, uh, this great aspiration, great compassion, and started to try and um, practice and try to spread the Dharma, but found, found it was very, very difficult. And that the people around were very unreceptive. And what's more, they weren't only unreceptive, they were actually quite violent. <laughs> and quite disagreeable. And so he got quite depressed and then uh, decided, well, I just retreat to a cave for a while and then tried again and then it f- found, it, found it very, very difficult and then thought, well, maybe um, tried a few more lifetimes actually, came back for a few lifetimes, kept trying and found it so difficult and then occasionally would retreat again, give up on everyone and then say, no, I've got this great Bodhisattva heart must go and try again, and in the end, uh, was so so overwhelmed by the the the, the suffering that uh, Avalokiteshvara appears as masculine and feminine that that he or she was uh, confronted by, that it's said that her head just shattered into ten thousand pieces, that she completely he shattered, and was strewn across the land, couldn't take it anymore. 
You know, and it, it's that, that moment that we too, as we awaken, it's not that we're becoming somehow removed, but we're awakening into the reality of what we're engaged with in this relational field. We're not sort of going off into a little cubbyhole somewhere, but we're opening ourselves in this as this deepening motivation happens into our willingness to bear with the reality of how it is. And as we see more and more deeply into how it is, we see so many things. Yes, we see beauty and we see joy and we see happiness and we also see great travesties, travesties of justice. We see great uh, horrors inflicted uh, in wars and the decimation of um, the beautiful animal kingdom and the... um, madness that can happen. There's um, uh, one of the um, First Nation Khoisan people, women, elders of the land where we've been living, area we've been living um, for many years on the border of Lesotho in South Africa. One of her comments about the the time we're in, our, our current civilization. Of course, she came from a people that had lived tens of thousands of years in harmony, really, with the natural environment, moving across the lands of southern Africa as a hunter-gatherers. And one of her comments was that, you know, they felt as First Nation people, they were very on track. She had this term, very on track, very much in harmony. And that we're like way off track. <laughs> We've gone so far off track, um, you know, off kilter. We've disconnected, very disconnected from the, the stars and the cosmos and the earth and the land and the rhythm of the seasons and the, our, our placement within the totality. We've become arrogant, actually. This is our, you know, one of our diseases. We feel that we don't need even the earth. I mean, when I read sometimes, you know, so many species going extinct, and I think, don't we realize we're a species? <laughs> As if it's something there, you know, not realizing the natural progression of extinction implies us. <laughs> you know, so it, it's, we're so off track that we, that we have a sort of insanity about where we're not seeing how it is. We're seeing, you know, we're living in our delusion and our disconnect. And it's very, very painful. It's like we're ripped out of this deep connection, which older, more ancient peoples felt and lived and had, not to overly also romanticize, because there were definitely struggles and difficulties, but this disconnect and so, you know, when, when we see the results of that off-trackness now and how it's uh, manifesting, and, you know, you see the, the lands burning and flooding and the disorientation that we, that we feel and the soullessness of our consumerism and the, and the heartlessness of our disregard uh, for the beauty and the miracle of life around us and that we're within. It's, uh, it's like that shattering. It's like, you know, it shatters us. It's, it's hard to tolerate. It disintegrates us. And uh, that's, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's painful. It's, it's dukkha. It's a dukkha. It's not necessarily just about our own 
introverted dukkha, but it's the dukkha that we all share now. This is the dukkha. This is the global dukkha. That uh, when we feel that, we're like Avalokiteshvara with all the pieces of us strewn across the land. We don't know what to do. And so it's said when Avalokiteshvara was shattered, he called out, she called out to her guru, please help me. (laughs) And the guru, Amitabha Buddha, came, appeared and said, well, you know, what did you think you were doing? You're so ambitious, you know, trying to save all living beings. (laughs) You know, maybe you should sort of be a bit less ambitious in your aspiration. (laughs) This Amitabha Buddha represents the pure uh, light of uh, consciousness. The... uh, that which is never, uh, you know, which is uh, which is always available, which is always victorious, which whatever the challenge can meet it and overcome it, as uh, Nelson Mandela in his favourite poem, Invictus, this is the last line of the poem. I can't remember the whole poem, but the the litany of challenges and then the affirmation, I am the captain of my soul. That he knew even everything he went through, uh, he knew that, uh, he knew the primacy of this this consciousness, this awareness, that is victorious in the face of everything. Even if we wobble all over the place. And so as we, you know, we're, we're off track and we look at the devastation of that and the challenge of that, you know, like uh, the uh, Amitabha Buddha with great compassion, because this is a place of great compassion. It's not, yes, we can judge how terrible we are <laughs> that we've allowed ourselves to get to the state we're in now. But actually, that's not necessarily going to help, or we can blame and apportion blame. And yes, that can be true too. Who did this and you did that? And it's so painful, but we can also have a different response that comes from this mindful relationship that feels with the suffering and it's not so concerned about saying well it's your suffering you take it it's like there is suffering and it needs a response and so this is a place of great compassion like Amitabha Buddha then picked up all those pieces with great care and put Avalokiteshvara back together but created a whole new form. And so then you see the, the risen Avalokiteshvara with a thousand hands and eyes and eleven heads and this great sort of, uh, has been reshaped into great capacity. And within those hands and eyes has all sorts of abilities to respond in all sorts of ways. Some of them are very gentle, like a a vase, a vase that just has sweet dew in it, that just can be poured just to soothe and calm living beings. Some has a whisk just to wipe away obstructions for living beings. One hand has a like a lasso to tie up demonic energies that tie up living beings and make them crazy. Or another hand has a, 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 an arrow to pierce the heart of living beings with truth. Or another one has books to educate and illuminate. Or another one has a mirror to reflect back the, the one living beings and so they can recognize their true nature. 
or has a, um, a saw to cut through uh, the obstructions. These are all the mani- what's called the, the, the manifestation of the Dharma bodies, our Dharma bodies. Is a, have a look at Teshvara as a metaphor for this deepest heart, this awareness that can emerge and respond as a Dharma body, a subtle energetic body that has response and capacity. So that when we are shattered, it's a, a process. It's not, it's a process that when it takes us back, it's inviting us back into this deepest heart to listen, to return and to know this is part of the journey. When we take that journey through suffering, whether it's personally or collectively, there will be a shattering. That which uh, we try to, with where we've tried to work from, from our self-structure, is perhaps not going to work. And it's a very interesting moment. What do we do in those moments when we try everything and it doesn't work, and we don't know then what to do? You know, sometimes it does, you know, but there are those moments. I remember once um, Kitty Sara and I were, um, you know, this life we have, this other life <laughs> in South Africa. We've uh, been there for a few years. And it was actually pretty challenging to come out of a, a monastery where if you raised an eyebrow, it was an act of regression to go into KwaZulu-Natal. And the, t- the first retreat we did there, it was there was a low-grade civil war going on, actually, uh, between the, the local uh, Zulu party, the Inkata Freedom Party, and the, the ANC, African National Congress, who were sort of uh, down the road. And uh, nearly 100 people got killed in just a nearby area to us. And people will be told. So after the 94, the, after the political liberation, we, we arrived a few months after that. And it was very turbulent. It was great euphoria, of course, because it was a tremendous victory over a a very deeply um, degrading injustice that had gone on for many years and sort of moving on. And it's a very complex history how apartheid arose from the colonial, um, you know, beginnings several hundred years and all of the immigrations and the settlers and you know there's no piece of land there almost hasn't had some kind of war on it some kind of conflict Um, and the 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 ongoing grabbing of resources and the oppression of the uh, people and the genocide of those first nation people is a very you know very thick and complex karma and of course, this great struggle that had the country had undergone for for decades, which was headed by the likes of uh, Mr. Mandela and Desmond Tutu and many great brave uh, people from all races, obviously, obviously primarily from African um, African people, but uh, many great heroes and a great struggle. And so, in '94, that first election. Was uh, was a, a tremendous um, uh, opening and and powerful experience for everyone involved. But it also it's not only euphoria, but it also unleashed a lot of violence. 
And uh, so we were, we had arrived and we were teaching Dharma and people were turning up and people had all these difficult stories and um, murders and I, it was like, I just, it was just um, very frightening, very activating, very challenging. How do you meet this? You know, like, you know, I've been in this very protected space in a monastery uh, you know, you don't you, you don't sort of confront those kinds of things. Maybe you have a little bit of an argument over, you know, where you put your sitting mat. <laughs> and in the in the midst of all of this, I, uh, I had a very powerful dream. And I think it was a, a time when I was quite, you know, had quite a lot of heightened fear, and I, and I had a, a a dream of this uh, this African woman. And it was very, very vivid because the dream was so vivid that that when I woke up, I was looking for her in in my room. And she came to me in the dream and um, she uh, took my hand and um, she led me down this road and then she asked me to take Kitty Saro's hand and we were standing there and she turned to, to face me and then this milk came from her breasts and it started to flow into me and flow out of me into Kirisaro. And I thought I was going to actually, I couldn't swallow quickly enough and I thought I was going to drown. And she just said, just relax. And so uh, I tried to relax and then she, she gave me this mantra. And then she disappeared and I woke up and I leapt out of bed and I was like looking for her. And I realized on some level there was, there was a, a welcome it was like, you know, this you're you're being welcomed to this land. Whatever's going on, you're being welcomed, uh, and um, you're going to be nourished. And around this time, also, Kitty Sar and I, you know, it was like really we were starting our hermitage, and it was, you know, it was um, it was pretty challenging. Everything was pretty challenging. So we said, oh, why don't we go to the movies? You know, it's like. What else are you going to do? You know, and so there's a certain point when you practice, and there's a certain point when you go to the movies. You know, so so we decided this evening that we set off um, to drive. I mean, going to the movies is not a small thing. It's like a two-hour drive, and it's not just like any old drive. You're you're driving through the you know, you're driving through the territories of the, the 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 tribal lands of the Zulus. And you know it's not that cool if you break down at night if if you're whitey, so you know there's, there's a certain edge to it all. So um, anyway, we said never mind all that. We're going to the movies. So we sort of jumped in the car and uh, drove off and and um, and it, and in the summer there we get these tremendous uh, rainfalls and storms, lightning storms, and then this uh, this storm came through as we were driving, and then this mist descended. And we were on this this long windy road, and then got behind a logging truck, and going like twenty miles an hour, and just like we're never going to get to the movies like this, you know. And at a certain point, Kitty is driving, and then he starts to pull out, and we're looking, you know, pull out, looking. And at a certain point, he pulls out, and it's like we look at each other, yeah, it looks good, let's go for it. And he put his foot down, and he starts going really past this logging truck and then suddenly right in front of us there's some headlights 
And I swear to God, I knew we were finished. It was like my body went to jelly. It was like, this is, this is it. And uh, Kitty Sara turned around to me. And I was like all over the place. Never my mindfulness. I was just like a <laughs> jelly, you know. And Kitty Sara, he's, he's so good in moments of extreme moments. <laughs> all that wrestling training. <laughs> so it came to the fore and he turned to me and he just said, Pray. And it was the most perfect thing because I was like, that's the thing you do. That's what you do when you don't know what to do anymore. You pray. <laughs> so I did. I put my mind, I actually prayed to Hanuman in that particular moment. Put my mind where, where you know, on, on where my faith is. And then uh, for some reason, and then Kitty Sorrow had the gumption to accept. If that had been him, mean, I would have break probably, and that would have been curtains definitely. But he actually accelerated, and somehow we got past that truck. But the bizarre thing that night was, actually, as we were coming off the freeway to go down to the city where the movie house was, you know, and we were like this the rest of the journey, this car came flying off. Um, opposite us and it didn't stop and it crashed into us so we did have a crash that night but it wasn't a serious one we just got dented and the feeling I had was it almost like it was a lot of momentum to have a complete wipeout crash but there was like there was still some momentum in it so we had a crash but it wasn't you know it wasn't obviously we're still here but it was so this 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 sense of so I want to just mention this because I think in those moments when we're in life and all of these practices that we're doing there are places like in Evada Kiteshvara was strewn across the land and didn't know what to do there are places where it's appropriate to turn to the mystery however we understand that and to offer into that our prayer our aspiration our suffering our we don't know what to do and to listen, there's in the Dharmador of Kuan Yin, there's this beautiful phrase that says, the response and the way are intertwined inconceivably. So the way, we practice the way and there's a response because there's a deeper intelligence here. And we can hear that response if we're listening. The response and the way intertwined inconceivable. It's inconceivable. We don't know what that response will be. But if we're we're already in our strategies, we won't give ourselves a chance to hear a deeper response or a more authentic response or a wiser response or a response that may help us be rebuilt with more capacity to meet whatever we have to meet. So it's a humble, you know, that moment of releasing out of, I know what to do, I have all the answers, we should go like this. You know, or it shouldn't be this way. All of those responses, it's like in, in a way that suffering will bring us to this place as well, where there's a humbling, when we have to move from this brilliant, creative, extraordinary mind of ours to listen back into this deeper heart that has a connection with every living thing, has a connection with this great earth, that has a connection with this deepest intelligence of the Dharma. And we do that, we, we will find our way forward. 
we will be guided, we will then, that raft will be, uh, will be supporting us, but we'll know that actually that other shore that we're going to is always right here, right now, within this listening, present heart. This is where the Dharma ultimately is. Not so much in the books or in the masters or the teachers who do demonstrate and guide us, but this living Dharma is arising within this deepest awareness of our present heart. So Ajahn Chah, just to finish with um, our teacher, who's greatly inspired us, as someone that um, didn't read a lot, didn't write anything, left school at 13, um, was probably one of the wisest people we ever met, and uh, learnt a lot of his wisdom from the natural world, from the forest, from the animals, from the natural world of the mind and the heart. Just this, uh, uh, put a, a lot of effort and energy into the practice, a lot of faith, a lot of dedication, and then all of that, all of those seeds, like we planted the seeds in this retreat, they, they ripened in his life and was able, particularly towards the end of his life, he was able to, to help so many beings to the point where, and even now, you know, he's helping us still. You know, his message is still being communicated and supporting. He said, uh, he said you know, it's like you're becoming a, you, know, you start off like a seed, but that seed grows and eventually you become a, like a great tree. You know, and in that tree, all sorts of birds come and take shelter and they chatter away, but it doesn't really bother the tree. You know, the tree can just be there. It's not so bothered anymore about the ways of the world. You know, it's able to respond, able to be compassionate, but knows how to return to this peaceful heart. And yet, from that place, able to affect thousands and thousands of people. So not to underestimate this, uh, the fruits of this practice. And Jen Charles just simply reminded us by saying, try to be mindful and let things take their natural course. Then your mind will become still in any surrounding like a clear forest pool, and you will see clearly the nature of all things. You will see many strange and wonderful things come and go, but your heart will be still. This is the happiness of the Buddha. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.